Praise the Lord. If you brought your Bible, please take it and go again to the book of Habakkuk. And we're going to continue studying through this important book of the minor prophet Habakkuk. I'll give you a moment to find it because it's a little bit of a challenge. And uh, it's hidden there at the end of your Old Testament. But these words written by Habakkuk so long ago uh, were written in times not unlike our own. Times of change and difficulty, uncertainty, and times in which God was speaking just as he is today. How many of you believe God still speaks? And this morning as we read, uh, we're going to read verse 1 through 4 of chapter 2. So these are not unfamiliar to you. Most Christians have heard these words at some point or another. I want us to reflect on them as God's answer to Habakkuk and to, and to Habakkuk's prayer. Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 1, I will stand on my guard and station myself on the rampart. I will keep watch and see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. Then the Lord answered him and said, record the vision, inscribe it on tablets, and the one who reads it may, read, may run. For the vision is yet for an appointed time. It hastens toward the goal, and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. Behold, as for the proud one, my soul has no, uh, not, his soul is not right within him. But the righteous will live by faith. Amen. This morning, as we come to the word of God, incline our ear to hear from him. Father God, we thank you for the precious word which you have given to us, this Bible, which is life to us and to our spirit. I pray that you would anoint me to teach and preach the word of the living God, and I ask you to anoint this congregation that they might receive the word and that it might become fruitful in their lives. We ask this in Jesus' name, and everybody said amen. Amen. You may be seated this morning. I want to share with you, as I mentioned last week, Habakkuk's name means embraced by God. And because he was living in times of great uncertainty, uh, such as the times we live in today, sometimes we can become fearful and uh, the uncertainty can lead to a, a fear which is often uh, caused by the fear of the unknown. And yet we are given a message from God that we have been embraced by God. We are in the arms of a loving and caring father. The child of God has this assurance, this confidence that he has been embraced by the arms of God and that he's going to see the goodness of God in the land of the living. You don't have to wait to go to heaven to see the goodness of God. You can see the goodness of God right here, right now. Say amen, somebody. I shared with you also that the book of Habakkuk is a dialogue. It's a conversation between God and man. And this conversation uh, is uh, possible for you and I uh, as well in this generation, in this time that you're living in. God still speaks, and he wants to speak to you, and he wants you and I to uh, speak to him, to, to be a part of this dialogue with God. I'm not talking about hearing voices, but rather the voice of God, which also co often comes in the, uh, in the sense of words or thoughts that come into our inner man. 
Sometimes you might have said, oh, something told me to do that. And it wasn't something, but rather the voice of God speaking to your life. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and another they will not follow. Learning to hear and obey the voice of God is one of the most important steps you can take in your Christian life. And young people, I want to encourage you to learn to hear the voice of God. And parents, I want to encourage you to teach your children to listen for the voice of God in their life. Because you won't be there every day of their life. But if a young person can learn to hear the voice of God and be led by the, the voice of the Spirit of God, they can avoid a great many troubles in this life. And so one of the most important steps of Christian maturity is to learn to hear from God. I'll explain a little bit more about how that uh, works in just a moment. But this dialogue that we see with Habakkuk, it is beginning in chapter 1 with problems. And Habakkuk's primary problem is that he doesn't understand what God is doing. He sees the, a great number of uh, problems that are in the world, and God is not seemingly interested in solving any of those problems. It seems to him that God has in some way neglected his responsibility or his place. And yet, even though he doesn't understand what God is doing, he continues that dialogue and that conversation with God. You and I have to uh, gain that same determination that no matter what we go through in life, even when we go through seasons that we don't understand, that we always have that conversation with God. Paul said, pray without ceasing. A constant and con continuous communication between the believer and, and the Father is essential to our spiritual life and even essential to our material life. And so, although he doesn't understand what God is doing, he continues to talk to God and to pray. And this is how he describes that action that he's going to take. In chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, I will stand on my guard and station myself on the rampart. He's talking about the watchtower. Every city in the ancient world had a, a wall made of stone that surrounded it. This was intended to pre uh, prevent it from being overtaken by a sudden invasion. At night they would shut the gates of the city so that no one could come in or out without guard. And then they would place on the high towers of that wall men who would watch all night long. They would stand watch, uh, most often three or four watches of the night. And so they would go for a couple of hours and watch to make sure that there was nothing threatening the city. And if they saw a, a, a threat, either of fire or an enemy army approaching, then they would sound the alarm and awaken the city and uh, uh, cause it to come into its battle position. And so the prophet says, I don't understand what God is doing, but I'm going to the watchtower. I'm going to go up. I'm going to ascend to a place where I can hear from God. I've told you before that the, the Christian is called to an upward calling. God is always calling us to go higher. And the life of prayer is a life of ascendance. It's a life that invites us to go up to a higher place. Just like Moses when he went up to Mount Sinai. And he left down on the, uh, on the uh, floor of the plains that great nation of maybe two million people. 
He, he climbed that mountain in order to hear from God. Sometimes you have to leave the voices of the people and the voices of the culture and the voices of the world aside so that you can go up and hear what God would say to you. And if you will do that, you will find that God will meet you in that place. Every one of us has the option every, every time we make a decision. Every time we have a challenge in our life, we have an option. Am I going to go up or am I going to go down? Am I going to be positive or negative? Am I going to be discouraged or encouraged? Am I going to quit or am I going to fight? Every one of us has to decide. Am I going to complain and am I going to uh, uh, speak about people and be critical and criticize? Or am I going to go up? Am I going to encourage my Christian brother? Am I going to thank God instead of complaining? And am I going to adopt an attitude of a victor instead of a victim? You have that choice every single time. I want to encourage you to go up and, and understand that when you go up, you are drawing nearer to God. And God will meet you in that place. God doesn't attend pity parties. He attends victory parties. He, he attends praise and worship services. He attends houses where he is honored and glorified. And so the prophet says, I'm going to go up and I'm going to stand guard. When the believer is facing uncertainty, he must take a stand. The believer has to st stand and, and be willing to face the challenge, willing to face the uncertainty, willing to face the darkness. And the Bible says this, to put on the whole armor of God so that you can stand when the evil day comes. In other words, the evil day is coming. Bad days will come. You can't cancel them. You can't mark them off your calendar. They're going to come. Most of the time they come without warning and without notice. And so you and I have to make a decision. No matter what comes, I'm going to stand firm. I'm going to hold my ground. The temptation is when we are faced with a challenge is to run and hide. God is saying to you, don't run, don't hide, stand. Stand and see the salvation of the Lord. Stand and see God show up and show off in your life. How many of you have taken a stand for God? How many of you have taken a stand for Christ? Hold your ground because we're living in dangerous times. He says, I'm going to stand and I'm going to keep watch. The word watch in, in our time uh, probably refers to a, a time device you wear on your wrist. But in those days, to watch was to stay awake at night for a particular amount of time and to, to have your eyes open and to be watchful about the things that were going on. It was a watch in the night. Jesus told his disciples at the Garden of Gethsemane, could you not watch for me with me for even one hour? And we, we see believers that when we come into prayer, we're coming into a watchtower. We're coming into a place where we can receive spiritual insight and perspective and answers from God concerning the things that are in our life and the, the things that God wants to do in and through our life. And so it's important for every believer to keep their watch, to stand watch, because there is an enemy always prowling about trying to destroy. There is a, a flesh always trying to get its way. And there is a culture that is taking away the, un, uh, the unconverted and the unestablished uh, by leaps and bounds. And you and I must stand watchfully 
and understand that we live in an evil day and our eyes are looking toward Christ and toward the shepherd that we might be directed by him and take only the steps which he gives to us. He says, I'm going to go into the watchtower and I'm going to listen for what God will say to me. I want you to understand the faith of that last phrase of verse 1. He says, I'm going to see how uh, God will speak to me. He has this confidence that God will answer. God will speak. Now I want you to understand that what he is looking for is a word from God. He has this faith, this confidence. God will answer. He's going to answer with a word. And his word will be enough for me to be able to go forward in this day of difficulty and adversity. Listen, friend, the thing you and I need most in our daily life is a word from God. You see, one word from God can change the destiny of a nation. One word from God can change the destiny of a family. One word from God can utterly and completely change your life. Say amen, somebody. The word of God, this all-powerful word, is what the prophet is looking for. Many times we're looking for the hand of God. What's God going to do for me? Habakkuk says, I'm not looking for God's hand. I'm looking for God's voice. I want to know what is God going to say. Because if God says it, God will do it. If God speaks, God will act. What I need is the voice of God in my life. I need to hear him speak. And when he speaks, I'll have the answer that I need. And I'll have the victory that I need because his word is our provision. Now here, here's how God speaks. When you read the Bible, the Bible refers to itself with two uh, Greek words. One of them is the word logos. Everyone say logos. It's like the word logo, logo with an S at the end. Logos is a Greek word that represents the or speaks of the written word. The Bible is God's logos. It is God's written word. The 66 books in your Bible were inspired by the Almighty God. And the word of God contained in this book, the logos of God contained in this book, is not up for edits, it's not up for revisions, and it's not up for change. It is the ever-enduring and abiding word of God. Here's the fact. You don't read the Bible. The Bible reads you. The, the word of God, the written word of God is powerful, the Bible says, more powerful than any two-edged sword, able to divide between the soul and the spirit as between the bone and the marrow. The word of God is so sharp that when it is read or when it is preached and proclaimed, it cuts and it heals at the same time. It cuts out sin and it cuts out uh, wrong thinking and wrong ideas and it heals and restores. Somebody ought to give God thanks for his word. And God speaks through the Logos. God has spoken and he is speaking through the Logos, through his word. The Bible is the word of God. And when you open the Bible and you open your heart, God will speak to you. And he'll give you direction. He'll give you insight. He'll give you light for your darkness. He'll give you peace for your times. When you open up the Bible and you, and you open up your heart, God sits with you at that table. And he begins to teach you from his own heart the things that he has in store for you. But then there's another word in the Greek. It's the word rhema. Everyone say rhema. This word means the living word. 
And the Bible says that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the rhema of God, the word of God. Now we're talking about the next, uh, 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 this next part of how God speaks to us. And that is that the logos, this written word, becomes a living word. So you open your Bible, you begin to study, you begin to open your heart in prayer. You're saying, God, show me something, give me an answer, give me direction, feed my spirit. And while you're reading the logos or hearing the word of God preached, as you are this morning, suddenly something that is written there becomes alive to you and the revelation of it becomes real to you and that is the rhema of God. How many of you have ever been reading the Bible, just minding your own business and then suddenly God answered something that you were wondering about or, or questioning or doubting or maybe one day someone was preaching and all of a sudden something was said that spoke exactly to the need and situation of your life. God's rhema is alive and well today for every believer who will open their heart like Habakkuk to say, God, I'm going to listen for your voice. We come to church to hear the word of God preached, not to be entertained, but to be edified, to be built up, and to receive the rhema of God. Now, some people are kind of picky about their preachers. And some people say, not here, of course, but in other places they say, well, you know, if the pastor's not preaching, I don't really want to go this Sunday. When I first arrived here uh, several years ago, almost 12 years ago, somebody uh, told me, Pastor, you know, I drive by the church, and if your car's not in the pastor's parking lot, I just keep driving. Everybody say, sad. That's not how it works. You see, it's not the messenger that brings the rhema. It's the spirit of God that brings the rhema. It's the word of God that you need. And, and so for me, it's exciting when I hear my favorite preachers preach. It's exciting when I read a dead preacher's sermon. And it's exciting when I hear my students preach in the seminary. And sometimes uh, as they're preaching, I'm sitting there taking notes and I'm grading their sermon and their style and their delivery and their composition. But I'm also being edified and built up by the word of God because, you see, the teacher is not the, the person speaking. The teacher is the Holy Spirit of God who takes that word and applies it like medicine to your life, like first aid to your wounds. Come on, somebody. You and I need the word of God. And the Bible says that faith comes by hearing the rhema of God. That's why Habakkuk's statements here are so important. He says, I'm going to stop what I'm doing, and I'm going to listen. I need to hear the rhema of God. I need to hear what God is saying to me. And then, as I mentioned to you, this is a conversation. So in verse 2, it says, then the Lord Answered. Everyone say that. Then the Lord answered. Do you have the kind of faith to believe that God still answers prayer? How many of you have ever uh, have you, have ever had an answer to prayer? Come on, act like you are are an experienced believer this morning. How many of you have ever had an answer to prayer? Every person in this room has has had God answer. 
And Habakkuk says, then the Lord answered. Now I just want to encourage you, sooner or later, God is going to answer. If you will just stand your ground and hold on and walk by faith. So now it's God's turn to speak. And these are his instructions. He says, write down the vision, record the vision. Now the vision specifically here for Habakkuk was the rise of the nation of the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. And uh, really, Habakkuk was beginning to prophesy the beginning of the age of the Gentiles, the time that you and I are uh, living in today. And what he says here is that the Babylonians are going to rise up. He sees this by vision. But God has given you a vision too. He's given you a, 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 a heart full of dreams and plans. He's given you ministry and calling. And all of you who have a vision from God have a responsibility to God for that. Sooner or later, we're going to stand before God and, and he's going to ask us, what did you do with what I gave you? What did you do with the ministry I gave you, with the calling I gave you, the assignment I gave you, with the gifts I gave you? Well, Lord, I was kind of afraid, so I just hid them in the back closet and uh, didn't do anything with them. And he's going to say, sad. You have a gift from God, an assignment from God, and, and he tells Habakkuk, I want you to write this down. Now, what is so important about writing things down? Well, number one, when you write something down, you give it importance and you make it a reality. When you bring a thought out of your mind and onto paper, it takes a more real form. And you give importance to it. When, you're, when your wife asks you to go to the store uh, for some groceries and she says, I need eggs, I need milk, I need flour, I need uh, these things. And you say, okay. And then you get there and you didn't write it down. And you're thinking, okay, eggs and flour and milk. And this is what happens, sadly, many times, not just with grocery lists, but with what God gives us. With assignments uh, from God that we don't write down and then they get lost on the waves of, of our thought life and, and we forget about it and they, they soon pass into nothingness. God says, Rebecca, I want you to write down what I say to you. When God speaks to your life, you need to write it down. Take it seriously. Treat it like something important, something of value in your life. You see the words of God, when you write them down, they not only uh, are uh, written down because they are given importance, but you also make things more memorable when you write them down. Somebody said that a sharp pencil is better than a dull, or a dull pencil is better than a sharp memory. You're tending to forget, but when you write something down, you are documenting what God has spoken to your life. I'll give you an example from my own life, from my own experience. And I could give you many examples. I actually felt tempted this morning to bring you my stack of journals, where for the last uh, 20 years or so, I have been documenting what God has been speaking to my life. And I didn't bring them because I know you'd like to read them, and I don't have time for that. But one day I was traveling through Mexico on a bus. The bus was pr pretty much empty. I was a missionary at the time. While I'm sitting there meditating on the word and what God has uh, been saying to me, I, I receive a download. It's a plan for a Bible institute. I start to write down the plan, filled up the pages of that 
uh, uh, a couple of pages of that notebook with this plan. What courses would be taught? What would be the emphasis? What would be the, uh, the purpose? How much time this would take? And so on and so forth. And I, uh, I thought about it. I, I closed the notebook. I said, well, maybe when I'm an old man, I might do that. And I put it away. I didn't realize I had just received a vision from God. He had just given me an assignment. Just a few weeks ago, I found that notebook, and those notes are still there, bearing witness to the fact that God spoke. A year later, I was in Mexico again on a different trip, and one of the uh, pastors says to me, he's from here in the United States, he says, Brother Isaac, why don't you start a Bible school? I said, you know what, I have a plan for a Bible school. And within a few months, the Bethel Seminary was begun, which now for 15 years has been training hundreds of people for the ministry because one day somebody received a plan from heaven. What am I telling you? I'm telling you that God wants to deposit in your life something to change the situation around you. You see, the, the situation I had been praying about was the lack of preachers in the, new, in the young generation. And I was praying to God, God, your word says that the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Send laborers into the harvest. And then comes God's plan for my life. And can I tell you, friends, those same things can happen in your life if you will take seriously the word of God. God is speaking to you. He, he has important things to communicate to you, and there are important things for you to communicate to him. And when you write these things down, you are documenting for yourself and for the future that God is a covenant-keeping God, that God is a promise-keeping God, and that God will do what he has spoken in your life. If you believe that, say amen. And then God says to him, wait. Everybody say, wait. Now, nobody likes to wait. And he says in verse 3, for the vision is yet for an appointed time. That's the Hebrew word moed, an appointed time. God has an appointed time for things to come about. He says, though uh, it, uh, it, the vision is for an appointed time, it's, it's going to happen. It's going to take place. He says, but it's hastening toward its goal. You don't see it, but the, the word of God is hastening. It's rushing toward its fulfillment. And so while you don't see it, you just have to walk by faith and know that God's word is rushing toward its fulfillment in your life. I, I, I thought you might get excited about that this morning. That the things that God has spoken to you, the things that God has promised to you are rushing toward their fulfillment in your life. Come on, somebody. God is going to do what he said he would do in your life. He said it hastens, it's rushing toward the goal, and it will not fail, though it tarries. Wait for it. Say again, wait for it. Now, this is a very interesting uh, phrase that, that God uses here. He says, though it delays, it will not delay. Isn't that just like God? Though it delays, it will not delay. Okay, God, I'm confused now. And there's two dimensions that God is speaking of. He says, though it delays, that's how you see it. It will not delay, that's how I see it. In other words, our perspective, from our point of view, God is 
sure taking his time on this thing. And from God's perspective, it's going to happen right where he appointed it to happen. He says so right in the middle between, between your perspective and God's appointed time, you have to learn to wait. To wait on God's word to be fulfilled in your life. What does he say? He says wait for it. God has appointed a season, a time for those things to come about in your life. Have you ever noticed that there are, uh, there are moments in your life where nothing seems to happen and then all of a sudden everything happens? And all these things you've been praying about just suddenly come to pass. Why? Because there was an appointed season. Maybe God has us waiting because he's maturing you. Because he wants you to grow up a little bit. Nobody will give uh, their son a classic car when he's, when he's uh, 15. And they're going to wait till he's matured enough to be able to handle the power behind that engine and the quality of that car. And, all, and the same is with God. God might be saying to you, I want you to wait for it because I am growing you. I am developing you. But stay in position because suddenly one morning you're going to wake up and you're going to find yourself in a season of miracles, a season of breakthrough, a season of power. Come on, somebody. You are in that season right now. God is working and moving in your life. He says, so wait for it. Though it delays, it will not delay. God's schedule will not be broken or violated by man. And then in verse 4, we are given these words. Now, I want you to notice in verse 4, I hope you didn't close your Bible, but because you're going to need to open it again. Pastor Habakkuk is so hard to find, but just keep your Bible open, all right? We came to study the Bible. Is that all right? Now, in verse 4, God draws a line. He says there are two types of people in the world. Listen, there are two types of people in the world. We've got to get this real clear this morning. There are either lost people or saved people. God's people or the world. There are no other groups. There's only two types of people in the world, the righteous and the unrighteous. And this morning you need to decide whose side are you on. Jesus said it like this. He said there are, there are two ways, two highways. One is wide, it's broad, and it's very permissive. Anything goes. You can drive fast or you can drive slow. No speed limits. This road allows you to live however you want, to uh, do whatever uh, sinful thing you want. There's no limits, no boundaries, no rules, but this road leads to hell. This road leads to death, it leads to destruction. He said, and many there be that find it. You don't have to, you don't have to do anything to lose your soul, friend. The broad way, the way that leads to death, you don't have to do anything. All you have to do is get on the conveyor belt of life, and it'll take you right down to destruction. Jesus said there's another way, though. Aren't you glad there's another way? Because that broad way is wide, and, and it allows everything. It permits everything. But at the end of the day, the Bible tells us that sin is only fun for a season. 
pleasure and, uh, and uh, bliss are only for a season. All of the ways that a man can fulfill his appetite, his appetite for pleasure, for alcohol, for drugs, for sex, for, any, uh, for power, for money, all of those things ultimately leave man on that broad way destroyed and empty and bare. But Jesus said there's another way. He said this other way is, it has a small gate. The gate is small and the way is narrow. Have you ever had to get out of your car at a parking lot where you're parked too close to the next car? You crack the door open, you put one foot out. Am I the only one that had to do that? And you say, well, just back up the car, Pastor. How am I going to park it if I back it up? That's the narrow way. It doesn't allow everything. You got to decide what's worth the trip. I can't carry everything on this trip. I've got to leave aside some some things that I used to think were essential, but I've discovered since are not essential. He said, this way is narrow. Sometimes it's one foot in front of the other. And there's a voice that says, go to the right, go to the left. That's the way. You stay right there. And when I try to get off, he said, don't you do that. I get back in the way. And there it is. And there we say, oh, Lord, uh, this is so hard. He said, well, don't worry about it because this way, it might be narrow, but it leads to life. It leads to eternal life. Come on, somebody. Have you found the way? Jesus, we, Jesus is that narrow way. He said, I am. I'm not, I, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one goes to the Father. No one goes to heaven except through Jesus. Which way are you on this morning? Have you found the gate? Have you have you found the way? Because Jesus said, few there be that find it. Few there be that find it. Are you one of those few who have found the way to life? It's not that the way is hard to find. It's that people are so enamored with the broadness of the other life that they aren't really seeking it. But there comes a moment and maybe you remember that moment that came in your life when all that you could do in that old Broadway wasn't enough. And all the money you could accumulate wasn't enough. And all of the pleasures you could accumulate were not enough. And you found there's got to be another way. And you started to look around. And Jesus said, they're, they're few, but when they find it, they find life. Come on, somebody. Aren't you glad that day that that door opened up to you and your heart was filled with glory as Jesus came to become the Savior of your soul? There are only two groups of people, friend. There's no middle road and no middle way. You're either lost or you're saved. And today is the day of salvation. Now is the appointed time. When should I get saved, preacher? Right now. 
How do I get saved, preacher? Jesus said, if you will confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Oh, come on, friend. God couldn't make it any easier than that. He just made it available to every heart that will believe. You know, there was, there's a story about an old Methodist preacher. He was a preacher, he was a pastor, and one day he got saved under his own preaching. You see, you can be standing right smack in the middle of religion and not know the way. But one day as he was preaching the gospel, the logos became rhema, and his heart came to know Jesus Christ as his Savior. If you don't know Jesus this morning, I would leave this house of prayer until you have made Jesus the Lord of your life. God loves you with an everlasting love. He sent his son to die on the cross for you. And he says, no one under any circumstances who comes to me will under any circumstances be disappointed or turned away. So the prophet sees God draw this line. He says, Habakkuk, there are only two groups of people. The proud and the faithful, the unjust, and the righteous. He says, behold the proud one. His soul is not right within him. He thinks he's right. Every one of us, when we were walking without Christ, thought we were right. Somebody might think, well, I knew something was wrong, but for the most part, we thought, and you thought, I was doing the right thing. He says, the proud one, he thinks he's right, but he's as wrong as can be. And he gives us five statements in the book of Habakkuk chapter 2, so I want you to keep it open so you can follow me here. God gives five woes. Everyone say woe. When we say woe, it could mean we're surprised, like whoa. But in the Bible, woe doesn't mean surprise. It means watch it. And he sees five woes in the book of Revelation prior to the, prior to the end times. There's going to be three woes. These woes speak of judgment. They speak of God's unalterable judgment against the proud. Against those who reject and refuse the rule of God in their life. Look at verse 9, pardon, verse 6. He says, woe to him who increases what is not his. And how long he makes himself rich with loans. He speaks against Babylon, the Chaldeans, and he says the Chaldeans are under judgment because they are thieves and robbers. They're taking that which is not their own. You see the state of our national government today and you can see the ever-increasing size of our national debt and the misuse of the uh, funds that are uh, brought into the coffers of the United States government and you can see that America is guilty of this woe. We can't live long as a nation when we spend more than we make, when we become debtors to foreign nations. 
it is a sign of God's judgment on a nation. In verse 9, he says, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to put his nest on high and to be delivered by the hand of calamity. He speaks now to those who are unjust, who get rich out of injustice and trickery and falsehood. God says the Chaldeans are these people who are building up their kingdom with, unjust, with injustice. The Bible speaks of injustice falling in the streets. In verse 12, he says, Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with violence. He speaks against the Chaldeans for their bloodthirst, for their willingness to shed blood in order to advance their own cause and aims. America, too, is guilty of these sins, of building and, uh, and of destroying the lie, uh, uh, of building on, it, on the backs of others uh, through un- injustice and per- pursuing an unjust cause and then shedding the blood of the innocent. How many millions have been aborted in this nation? And this bloodshed cries out to God. And God will hold the nation responsible for that. Just a few years ago, we saw the overturn of Roe versus Wade. And I think that was an act of God's mercy toward our nation. But friends, you see that there is a culture of death in our nation. When you, pe- when you see people standing in the streets who are, uh, uh, who are protesting in favor of death and slaughter of the innocent, you see there is a darkness in our world that is unimaginable. In verse 15, he says, Woe to you who make your neighbors drink. You mix in your venom even to make them drunk so as to look at their nakedness. He says, Woe to them who use pleasure and enticement to bring other people into ruin. There's a reason why, Christians, that we draw the line at certain things. I know there's often a debate within the church about alcohol and drinking and and how far can we go and so on and so forth. But I want to tell you one thing quite clearly from the standpoint of your preacher. And what I have seen with my own eyes is that alcohol has never produced anything good in this nation and it will not produce anything good in your life. You say, well, pastor, I have to drink so I can network with the right people. What you need to do is network with God and let the wrong people go their way. Come on, somebody. You and I must understand there is a line that we cannot cross. God says these people, they mix a cup of wine. They use it to entice. We hear of the great number of people uh, today who are dying in our nation either by overdose or by poisoning of fentanyl. Somebody's making millions on the death of others. And God says, woe. And verse 19, he says, woe to him who says to a piece of wood, awake and to a mute stone arise. And that is your teacher. He says to those who worship idols, he says they build a a block of wood into an idol. And then they say, awake. And they speak to mute stones that cannot answer them. 
And he calls out the, the, uh, the idolatry that reigns in the heart of man. America perhaps does not have idols like I have seen in other nations. But we do have idols in this nation. Some idols are placed so high that people would rather go watch them play than come to church. I thought I'd miss my amen corner this morning. Some people, some idols are so high that some people would rather go get another dollar or work a few more hours and spend time with their family and go to the house of prayer. Is it any wonder, friends, when we speak to dead idols, when we speak to things that cannot possibly satisfy the need of man, that there is no answer because they have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have feet, but they cannot walk. But our God, he is in the heavens. He has ears. He does hear your prayer. And he has a mouth that he does speak. And he has arms and he does embrace you. So if you're on those, if you're on the side of the unrighteous, the side of pride, God says, whoa, 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 whoa. There's no blessing on that side. There's only calamity and judgment. He's telling Habakkuk, Habakkuk, don't worry about this, this thing you see, the Chaldeans rising, the, the Babylonians taking more and more power. That's all going to happen but they're going to meet their end, and they're going to know their judgment. Listen, friend, you can't live in sin and escape the penalty of sin. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. It's the unavoidable reality of life. You cannot live for the world and live for sin and not pay the penalty of sin. The wage of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is another way. I said there is another way. He says this is how the other side lives. The one side puffs itself up because we know what we're doing. We don't need God. The proud. The other side humbles itself. It rises to the watchtower. It listens for the voice of God. He says, the just. Are there any just people in the house of God this morning? He said, the just shall live by faith. Now, the faith we see here is very important because it's different from other actions that faith takes in the Bible. There's one place where faith is fighting. And Paul says, fight the good fight of faith. How many of you ever put your faith to fight? There's another place where faith is working. He says that, that our faith is like a, a servant that goes into the field and it goes into the kitchen and it goes, in, goes into the wardrobe. Our faith is working, and I've told you, put your faith to work. How many of you have your faith working? And don't let your faith sit down. Whatever you do, don't let your faith sit down. Keep it working. And in another place, we see that faith has a good conscience. 
That means that in order to really live by faith, we have to have a pure conscience before God. And how do we have that? We walk daily in repentance before God. And when we offend God and we break uh, his instructions, we repent of it and we return to his ways. But here, faith takes a different attitude. It's the attitude of humility before God. This is where faith says, God, I don't get it. I don't understand. I don't know why these things have happened in my life. I don't know why these challenges have faced my family. I don't understand it, but I'm going to believe in your goodness, and I'm going to trust that you know what you're doing in my life, and this faith humbles itself before God. Jesus went into the Garden of Gethsemane. He, he cried that famous cry. He said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. His faith was such that the Father could have removed the cup. And maybe our faith is such that, God, that we could say, God, I know you can take this problem away. I know you can take this challenge out of my life. But Jesus then said, but not my will. Your be done. Yours be done. I don't want what I want. I want what you want. When faith takes the attitude of humility, God comes near, friends. God shows up. Somebody ought to get excited because faith and humility working together bring an attraction to the presence of God. You see, the Bible says that God looks far away at the proud. Is that the Babylonians over there? Well, they don't need me. They think they don't need me, so God stays far away. But when he sees a righteous man like Job, a righteous man like Noah, or he sees a righteous woman like Hannah, or he sees a righteous saint like you, and he says, oh, that's my friend. And draw, he draws near because of the humility of your heart. He says, I am, I'm attracted to the humble, but I stay away from the proud. Come on, you, don't, uh, you and I do the same thing, don't we? Uh, we don't want to be around cocky people, prideful people. They do it better than us. Uh, their car's newer than ours. Uh, their, their job pays more than ours. N nobody likes that, neither does God. God says, when a man humbles himself, when a woman says, God, here I am, I trust you. I can't see your hand right now, but I trust your heart. I know that you are working and that you will answer. And God answers that faith. And he, he, tells, Joe, uh, he tells Habakkuk, this is the lifestyle that I seek in my people, that the just shall live by their faith. Faith isn't just for new believers. It's not just for starting out in the Christian walk. It is a daily reality. It is a long obedience in the same direction. If you started out by faith 50 years ago, guess what? When you meet Jesus, it's still going to be walking by faith. The 
The just must live by faith. The just shall live by faith. Guess what? The just will win by faith. The just will conquer by faith. Which side are you on this morning? I want to draw your attention as I close to the 20th verse of this chapter. Because God is telling Habakkuk, this is kind of funny. Habakkuk is telling God in chapter 1 how bad the Chaldeans are. And then in chapter 2, God tells Habakkuk how bad the Chaldeans are. They agree. And from Habakkuk's point of view, God has lost control of this situation. And maybe when you look around in our world and you see the chaos that is ensuing, it might seem like God has lost control and that somehow the enemy is running at large in the world. God enumerates the the, the woes of the Chaldeans, but then in verse 20, he says, but. Everyone say, but. Listen, I don't care how dark it looks. I don't care how uncertain you might feel in any particular season of your life. It doesn't even matter how difficult the challenge or how great the mountain may be. There's always a turn with God. He says, but this is also true. The Chaldeans, that's a problem. That's true. Their sin is going to destroy them. That's true. But this is also true. The Lord is in his holy temple. God is on the throne. Listen, we can bring a laundry list to God, and it might all be true. But this morning he says, yes, but I am still God. I am still on the throne. I am still in control. I have the last word in your life. Come on, somebody. God is in his holy temple. Somebody ought to praise him and worship him and honor him and glorify him. He is the king of glory. He is the king who reigns. And he says, the Lord is in his temple. Say that with me this morning. The Lord is in his holy temple. Say it again. The Lord is in his holy temple. One more time. Just seal the deal. The Lord is in his holy temple. God's in control. God has his hands on the wheel. He said, the Lord is in his temple. Let the earth be silent before him. The earth, first of all, represents the nations. In Psalm 2, the Bible says that the nations rise up. And they said, we're going to choose a Messiah. We're going to choose a king. And this is how we're going to do it. And this is what's going to take place. And God in his throne looks down at them and laughs. What a sound that must be to hear God laugh. 
Why does he laugh? He laughs at them and he says, what are you talking about? I have appointed my son and he will be king of kings. Come on, somebody. God is in his holy temple. Let the whole earth be silent before him. The nations don't have anything to say about it. Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus will have the last say. And when all the ages have come to their end and all the nations stand before the throne of God's judgment, it won't be Buddha, it won't be Mohammed, it, will, it won't be Abraham or Mary, it will be Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, sitting enthroned in power and in authority. Somebody give him praise in his house this morning. Let the whole earth be silent before him because he alone is King of kings and Lord of lords. 